Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Best thing in our life is free, but you can give it to the birds and bees. I need some money, need some money. Oh, yeah, what I want. Hello, welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co host, Justin Ritchie. Hey, Seth. I saw that you got back from Orlando recently. How was the trip? I did. I just got back from Orlando. I spent four days at the Peabody Hotel in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Not only was Orlando flat, but it was very, very warm in this cool time of the year. Uh, I spent a lot of time hanging out with some big names in the cardiology field, learned a lot about how to uh, put in stents and run guide wires into people's hearts, replace valves and, you know, administer a lot of cardiology drugs. Great. How How is Orlando adapting to peak oil? Oh, you know, they, they are living it big, strip malling it up. Florida is renowned for their strip malls, especially in the part of Orlando that I was in, which is extremely strip mall full. I saw a condo for sale that was $59,000 and I was thinking, hey, I could buy that and I could live in Orlando. Living living in Orlando, do you think that they have community gardens in Orlando? I didn't see much of any kind of gardens at all. I think most of it's just pavement and more pavement. I guess the only gardens they had was bush gardens. They did have some bush gardens. Yeah, I think that's actually in Tampa though. <laughs> oh, okay. Magic, Magic Kingdom is around the corner. Justin, yep. What have you been up to these days? This week we had Bill McKibben on campus. It was really great honor to have him here and speaking at Occupy Vancouver about his recent victory in getting the Obama administration to delay their decision on the Keystone XL pipeline. So for any listener that isn't familiar with it, there's this huge deposit of oil, the second largest deposit of oil on earth other than Saudi Arabia up in northern Alberta, and it's called the tar sands. And it's essentially a bunch of oil that you only can extract through using these complex processes that require a lot of water and a lot of natural gas to get the bitumen off. So you like have to wash the sands to get them off. And so there's this plan to pipe all that oil from Alberta to Texas. So they're going to build a massive pipeline across the middle of the continent. And so the Obama administration, because it was an international decision, an international border that it crossed over, the State Department had to make a decision. So Bill McKibben and 350.org was pressuring uh, the White House, and that's why they surrounded the White House. You might have seen some images of that recently. It was so much political pressure for Obama that he delayed a decision on it until after the election. It's not a, a total victory, but it's pretty big because the company TransCanada was planning on building this and they lose tons of money every single day that it doesn't the project doesn't move forward so who knows it may never happen or could happen that obama gets elected and he pushes it through right away or rick perry could get elected and he could build a pipeline everywhere in fact there could be a pipeline running through your house 
if Rick no, Perry is elected. I really hope that when Rick Perry is elected that the pipeline comes right to my house so I don't even have to pay for oil. <laughs> you know, I'll just tap, tap into that gas line, <laughs> fill up my car. Good to go. I probably could fill up other people's cars too. Maybe even, you know, have a little gas station out of my bedroom. Yeah, everywhere should be a gas station. There's just like pipelines running exactly like utility wires and you just open that tap, pump it right to your car and get going. Yeah, who needs to refine it really? Yeah. I mean, you could just build a refinery outside your door and pump the <laughs> oil right in. So Justin, who are we talking to today? So today we're speaking with Gwendolyn Hallsmith who works in town planning in Montpelier, Vermont, and also Bernard Leter, who is one of the world's leading scholars on complementary currency systems. And so Bernard and Gwen wrote a book called Creating Wealth, and it's all about a how-to manual to start your own community currency and the reasons why we need community currencies, and that's why we're talking with them today. I can't wait to hear more about community currencies. Now, Justin, I was not able to make it to this interview. Were you able to field all the questions by yourself? Yeah, definitely. Uh, unfortunately, you weren't able to join us for this one because of timing. Yeah, it was sad. Yeah, it was really yeah. sad. And, and that's going to happen occasionally. That's why we're a team. You know, sometimes it's going to just be me. Sometimes it's going to just be you. But we're going to keep moving the extra environmentalists forward. That's great. Yeah. So let's jump right in. What I want. I need some money, honey. I need some money so bad. All of my bills behind. I need some money right now. I know your love is so good, baby. I need some money. Oh, yeah. What I want. I need some money. I need some money. Gwen and Bernard, thank you so much for breaking away from Pop Tech in uh, Camden, Maine today to talk about your recent book, Creating Wealth, Growing Local Economies with Local Currencies. And we really want to dive into the topic of complementary currency systems here today because we've been speaking with a number of people about money systems and the way that money works. Let's start out by talking about the definition of wealth. And so much of the current failure of our money system is due to our current definition of wealth. And how did wealth become so misconstrued in the first place? And how can we begin to redefine it? We have started identifying wealth with financial assets during the industrial age, I would say, and it has got more extreme in the last 50 years. But the phenomenon has started with the industrial age. Before that, basically, people were identifying wealth with land or cattle or something. That was uh, of a physical nature. But it includes also other aspects of wealth, things like we're distinguishing not only financial wealth, but also human wealth which is what is it that I know or want to have as skills that make it worthwhile for other people to interact with me and even pay me if necessary. And social wealth, which is about the relationship, the network I have, that gives me a reputation and the possibility to obtain support or or resources without having to pay for it. And then you have, of course, collective wealth, things like natural wealth, historical wealth, or things that happen in cities. Gwen has been developing with the collective wealth more than I have. Do you want to complete that, uh, Gwen? Oh, sure, because in fact, we're trying to redefine wealth with the book, because when you look at the roots of the word, it goes back to the same word as wellness, or commonwealth, as common meal, and it had the sense of 
well-being attached to it. And we know we have well-being when our needs are met. And conveniently, sustainability is all about meeting our needs today without denying future generations the ability to meet their needs. So if we redefine wealth as a situation in which our needs are met and we have a sense of well-being, that's actually a more useful definition for a lot of people than simply having financial assets. In the book, you use the term bank debt money. So why do you use that term? Well, because it's actually the correct description of the bulk of our money. The national money is a misnomer, given that our money is created privately through debts with banks, with the financial system. This debt, every dollar you've seen is someone's debt. The government debt, corporate debt, city debt, or individual people. But it's always debt to a bank. What opinions do you have about movements that say, maybe in the United States, that we should end the Federal Reserve or ending the European Central Bank or, or something like that? Well, to me, it's uh, changing the from one monoculture to another monoculture. The key problem that I see in that we have been able to prove scientifically through five peer-reviewed articles in uh, various journals is that the instability of the system is due to the monopoly, the monoculture, the fact that we have a single currency. So to make the parallel with a natural ecosystem, if you have a monoculture, it may be very efficient, but it is not very resilient. You know, a pine forest may be very productive, but one match and everything is gone. So by nationalizing the money creation process, you will eliminate banking instabilities because the leveraging that the banks are performed would be disappearing, but you would not eliminate instabilities of a monetary nature. Yeah, when he says we have one currency, he's really referring to one type of currency, which is the bank debt money. That's used worldwide. There aren't alternatives to it. And it doesn't really matter whether the central bank is publicly owned or privately owned. It's still functioning in essentially the same way, and it's producing the same kind of money, which is based on the fractional reserve system. And every dollar bill in your pocket is issued, and it comes into existence through the existence of debt, through the issuance of debt. What would the alternatives be? What do you mean by a complementary? currency? Well, it's any medium of exchange that's standardized that can function in parallel with the official money that we currently have with bank debt money. And by the way, there are many different types of that that we're already familiar with. For example, one of the oldest, which is now 30, 40 years old, is frequent flyer miles, okay? That's been issued by an airline, and later by airline alliances. There are 15 trillion miles in circulation. This is not a small operation. It's mainstream, and it is a standardized medium of exchange that people use and with, uh, within a particular group. In other words, it's an airline. But they can use it also to buy taxi services, uh, hotels, restaurants, and all kinds of other things. So that's one example that people are familiar with. We believe that that is interesting in terms of demonstrating that it's possible to go large scale with these technologies, but it is not interesting from a social viewpoint or an economic viewpoint, because basically what it does is convince consumers to go back to the same airline or to the same shop. Okay? We believe that the same technologies can be used to do more interesting things for society, things like solving social problems, things like addressing ecological challenges, things like creating jobs. Bernard, in your work at the National Bank of Belgium, uh, you were involved with some of the initial implementation of the euro. And did you see some of the potential for these current issues when the currency was first being created? Or did you hear any domestic arguments against the currency? Well, I was told at that point what we were doing is don't touch the system, just change the geography. We were also told 
that the governance issues will be addressed later. We just have to deal with the technical things. Well, they haven't done anything about the governance part for 30 years until basically now, when it is uh, a crisis. So that's another problem. That there was no room for being preventive in designing the uh, European currency strategy. The instructions were totally clear that only one model was possible, the same model as before. And do you have any insights that you'd like to share about the current state of the European debt crisis? We have a saying in central banking circles that monetary policy has something in common with sausage. It's not a good idea to feed it made. And the current process is basically one where, well, they do it in public. Each of them looking behind their back to what the voters will think, which is uh, another particularly productive environment. So I think uh, the governance issue is the key problem in the way of making reasonable decisions within time limits of within a crisis environment. Gwen, in creating wealth, you cover some assumptions that people bring to the table when, when discussing change in our economic system, and mainly those assumptions center around that the economy is beyond our control and that money is a neutral medium of exchange. And, and why do we hold those assumptions, and is there any reality to them? Well, I think the classically trained economists tend to treat economics as if it was a natural science instead of a social science, which means that they rely a lot on their assumptions and tend to assume that their assumptions are all valid. In fact, they're not. Even the basic economic assumption that agents will act always in their own interest doesn't turn out to be valid when you consider altruism and other types of non-self-interested action. So people think, oh, the economy is just this big thing that has its own laws and its own momentum, and there can't be anything I could do about it in much the same way that there wasn't anything you can do about gravity or the orbit of the planets. But in fact, the economy is built on a number of agreements that we all have made and the policies and laws that we all have passed, and agreements can be changed and laws can be changed. It's not indelible, and it is possible in a democratic system to change those things. Now, when we talk about money not being a neutral means of exchange, that involves understanding the net systemic impact on our system of having all this positive interest bank debt money circulating through the community. Since every dollar bill comes into existence with the issuance of debt, it means that there's a built-in expectation that that dollar will earn interest. That means when you figure out how it works for corporations is that it's not sufficient for corporations to simply make a profit. They need to make a profit at an increasing rate to keep up with the compounding cost of money. And that essentially is something we all know as the growth imperative, which is this idea that more and more and more and more is what we need to do. It's not adequate to settle for sufficiency. And the growth imperative, the only places in our system where there's some give is in the natural environment and in the human environment. So wages are driven down, natural resources are depleted and destroyed, people end up in slavery, people end up in poverty. I think the proof of the whole hypothesis can be seen in the increasing disparity between the rich and the poor in our own society. It's increased over 50-fold just in my lifetime. And that's the function of bank debt money. It concentrates wealth and power in fewer and fewer hands. It's, it's a systemic effect. It's not something that evil people are doing. Most of the people that are working within the system don't understand it and probably would be willing to change it if they only understood it better. At least that's our hope in writing the book and suggesting alternatives. I would add to that that the process of creation of money also 
makes it a competitive instrument. In other words, people are always competing for money. It's a negative sum game. When someone pays interest, it uses the, up the principle of someone else. So the growth has to be there for that purpose. And we're all, always competing against each other for something that hasn't been created, which is the interest. It's only new loans that are created. I would also add that there's not all thing is negative about the historical effects of this currency or even of its monopoly. I mean, I would claim that the industrial age wouldn't have occurred without it. The industrial age required massive concentration of resources in order to happen. You couldn't, there's not a single steel mill that has grown out of a garage, and there is not a single railroad that has grown out of a of, of someone's garden, okay? These things have to be done on a large scale and therefore require substantial concentration of resources. Now, we are now past the industrial age, and I would claim that all countries in the world in the information age are the developing countries. There are so those that know it and those that don't know it. But the game is different, and it's substantially different. But we're still using the monetary system of the industrial age, and it's the one remnant that actually keeps us in the values and locked into the, the systems of the past that don't give us the leeway to address our challenges of today. Bernard, you've been involved with complementary currency systems for many years, and how have you seen the idea change shape? Let's put it this way. The listening has changed. People are listening to these ideas differently than, say, 10 or 15, 15 years ago. 15 years ago, it looked like a crazy idea. Now, it starts coming rather realistic to many that we need to do something. Japan has, was in the 1990s leading country in the domain of complementary currencies with the backing of the government. Today, it's Brazil and Uruguay that, in my view, are the leading countries. They have been most inventive, most supportive. Uh, Uruguay has even gone to the point of accepting a second currency, a business-to-business currency, for payment of all taxes, which means that everybody accepts it. Brazil, uh, the government is... Uh, supporting the creation of 200 dual currency banks with support of the Banco do Brasil. So we're nowhere near that in either Europe or the United States. And how does thinking about money and financial markets as a system change the way that we approach them? Because as growth is slowing due to ecological reasons and, and other reasons, is it fair to expect compounding or exponential decline as well? We've been, for the last six years, I've been working on the issue of complexity theory applied to complex flow networks. And the economy happens to be a complex flow network. So is a natural ecosystem, so is a natural distribution system, so is your immune system in your body, for example. These are all complex flow networks. We have been able to find out what's common between, first of all, between all natural ecosystems, they have in common to be sustainable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. And of course, they vary enormously in terms of variety of I mean, you have the Amazon or a little puddle in the back of of a farm. They're both natural ecosystems. And of course, climate makes totally different systems too. Notwithstanding all that, they have in common to be sustainable. And the research was, what else do they have in common? And we found out that they have in common that there are two structural variables, the diversity and interconnectivity, that need to be within a certain range. A monoculture is not there, never. So, in other words, what we're dealing with is a systemically, structurally unstable system because for two complex flow networks with the same structure, you're going to have the same behavior pattern. What we are seeing happening is not a degradation slowly, as you're kind of assuming in your question. What we're seeing is crashes, sudden collapses, and that's what you would have in a natural ecosystem too. A pine forest may be very more productive than a virus for a forest in terms of producing cubic meters of wood, However, one match and everything is gone. 
that is not terribly resilient. So the resilience is what's lacking. And the lack of resilience manifests not in a slow degradation, but in collapse. And that's what we're living in right now. And so the key in dealing with this collapse is looking at monetary system reform and talking about what's next and and what do we do as the crisis hits us. So what would monetary system reform entail and what historical examples are there of monetary reform that happened in the United States, uh, just since we're talking about that context? Well, there's a couple different types of reform. I think when you're using a term like monetary system reform, you're looking at something that would occur at the national level. And in the United States, there is a bill that's been filed by Representative Dennis Kucinich to reform the monetary system. But in fact, in our book, we're talking about monetary system reform that just about anybody can do because it can be done on a community level as well. It doesn't just have to happen on a national level. In fact, replacing one monoculture with another monoculture doesn't get you out of the mess. But replacing the monoculture with what we call an ecology of currencies, where you might have one currency that businesses use to trade with each other. You might have another one that is based on food that can be used to trade around the food systems in a community. Another one that's based on time that can be used for things like daycare and elder care and all of the things that take a lot of time in our lives, as well as types of currency that could be issued by local or state government to encourage participation, encourage different types of activities. For example, in in Japan, they, they designed a currency for Lake Biwa, that would enable people to earn currency by harvesting exotic species in the lake. And the prefecture could issue the currency and could require that people pay a certain amount of their taxes in that currency, which would create essentially a value for it. And people that had lots of time to harvest exotic species could earn a lot of these units. People who had no time to harvest exotic species, since they're required to make a contribution to the state effort in that respect, would then need to pay the people who were doing the harvesting for their units so they could meet their tax obligations. So essentially creating a new tax or a new contribution that's required in an alternative currency could be a powerful tool by local and state government to move policy in directions they want to go. It could work for the arts, it could work for the environment, it could work for participation in government, it can work for all types of different activities. And what is the role of the tax system in maintaining our currency environment and how can it be used to begin building a new one? Well, I may surprise you by telling you that the systemic purpose of a tax system is actually to give value to the currency that's asked for. Let me put it in negative terms. If tomorrow the U.S. government decided to use something else to require something else than bank debt money for payment of taxes, the dollar would disappear from circulation in a month, in a month time. And if, if they require pencils, pencils will become the valuable thing. Pencils are pieces of paper, electronic bits of whatever nature you want to find it. In other words, the purpose of the taxes is to create a demand function for that particular currency. So by using that power to require from the citizenry something that they need to do, in the old days in America, they used, for example, tobacco or or beaver pelts for payment of taxes. Well, people went out and got the tobacco and grew the tobacco or hunted the beaver pelts, and that was it. 
now basically we're requiring a particular kind of electronic money created by banks to be the only form that uh, is acceptable for payment of taxes. And that's why the only currency that actually has a strong value, quote unquote, a strong demand. All the other currencies, whichever way you can find them, are always going to be marginal compared to that. But the reason is not because they're not good currencies, it's just because the demand function is not there that the taxes pay. One of our listeners, Marge from Montreal and Quebec, was wondering if movement to reform the tax system would be able to change the current structure of the heavily corporatized economy that we live in today and start building a decentralized economy. Yeah, absolutely. As Bernard says, the tax system actually structures the currency that we use. And so the tax system, if it enabled a different type of currency to be used to pay taxes or to make contributions to government, like they have done now in Uruguay and Brazil, where they're allowing this business-to-business currency to be used to pay taxes in those countries, it could actually change things significantly. Although tax policy on its own isn't necessarily enough, there also needs to be steps taken to help make these other currencies work in a practical level. But in Montpelier, where I work, we've already designed three And Montpelier is a small town. It's only 8,000 people, but we've managed to get a couple different time-based currencies working, and we're working on implementing a food currency right now. So it's not impossible. It just takes an effort and some policy guidance to help it be implemented. Gwen, if you could talk a little bit about your experience working in Vermont and how the members of the local community have responded when starting to deal with issues of complementary currencies. Sure. Well, we have two different systems now at work in Montpelier. One is a standard time bank, which is a form of exchange that's based on a unit of time or an hour of time. Everybody's time is worth the same. And in the United States, our Internal Revenue Service considers time in a time bank to be voluntary service, so it's not taxable. So things that you can earn in a time bank allow you to raise your standard of living without jeopardizing your federal benefits, so you won't lose your food stamps, your housing subsidies, your Medicare, or your Medicaid, or your payment by the government for disabilities. We built on that system to develop a new system for elder care that's also built on the time model called a care bank, and I wrote a big grant to the federal government that administration on aging to implement the care bank and we've hired staff and put the systems in place. Basically, it's a way for elders to both contribute to the community and to receive the care that they need without spending money and without jeopardizing their federal benefits. It's also a great way to keep people involved in the community because one of the biggest problems of growing old is isolation and loneliness and a feeling of uselessness to your community. And and one of the important principles of time banking and care banking is this principle of reciprocity that everybody is expected to and encouraged to give back and receive the services in the bank. It's not a one-way system like a lot of the benefactor beneficiary systems that are set up through the government. Now, the food currency, which is the third currency, currency we've been developing is a way to enhance the income and strengthen the local food systems, enhance the income of food service workers and farmers and grocery stores and restaurants that are basically local and also increase the amount of food that's in storage in our local community. Vermont is a rural state and we have a lot of farms. We used to be a net food exporter back as recently as the early 1900s, but now 95% of our food comes in on the state every day on trucks. And so with the potential for disruptions in the transportation network and in the economy, it's really important that we start thinking about how to put more food in storage. So the way the food currency works, you'd actually buy food in storage 
whiz dollars and you'd get a receipt for the food in storage and you can use the coupons that you have for the food that you have in storage as a currency. So they could go to a restaurant or a grocery store or really to anybody that would have a use for the food. And since it represents actual food in storage, if whoever received the receipt or the coupon didn't want to exchange it for something else, they could always go back to the food storage area and reclaim the food that they now have a right to because it's all there. It's a different than a fractional reserve system. It's a full reserve system. And the reserves, instead of being in mythical quantities of gold, are actually in useful food. (laughs) So the fact that you could be using it on top of regular currency for food transactions also will provide people who are traditionally relatively low paid, like farmers and food service workers with a supplemental income that could help them raise their standard of living as well. Rubles, yen, shekels, dollars, money. The sound of money. The lovely sound of money. I find it quite appealing. A feeling you may share It seems to cheer me Whenever it is near me It elevates my spirit It was supposed to bring peace and prosperity for all And for a while it did But now the euro is costing people their jobs, their pensions and even their democratic rights From the beginning the flaws were there for everyone to see The skeptics said the economies of the likes of Italy and Greece were just too different from Germany and Finland to be regulated by one system. But optimism and idealism carried the day and a new currency was born. It was strong and stable and was regulated in ways a German central banker might approve of. But therein lay the seeds of the problem. Greece, Italy, Portugal and Spain now had their hands on a strong currency and could borrow against it. And unlike before, the interest rates they would have to pay would be much less, so they could borrow much more. Which is what they did. Italy currently has a debt-to-GDP ratio of around 120%. Greece's is more than 160%. That's a bit like somebody with an income of $20,000 a year owing $32,000 on their credit card. They will be bankrupt. The banks won't lend them any more money, the flat screen TV will be repossessed, and it'll be a diet of cabbage and potatoes. In the worst case, the house will go. It's similar for a country, but instead, public sector pay is cut and thousands of people are forced out of their jobs. For a country where cash is now in short supply, time has taken on a whole different value. In the time bank, we exchange voluntary services. Sometimes I give painting lessons for free, but they take yoga for free also. Somebody else is teaching yoga. The time bank's just one of a growing number of service-swapping alternatives that are providing people in Greece another way to cope with the tough economic conditions. Services can include anything from language classes to babysitting or home-cooked meals. It's huge. Everything we do without money, like looking after people or making things by ourselves. For a country in crisis, building social unity can prove extremely hard. Crisis is a terrible thing. It it creates fear. It divides people uh, from public sector workers to from private sector workers. It divides richer workers to poorer workers, uh, immigrant workers from home workers, and that's a terrible thing. But the Barton Networks have been a great way of bringing together large groups of people. A popular slogan here in Greece now is, no one's alone in the crisis. Organisations are arranging swap shops to exchange clothes, and one town in Greece has even started its own barter currency. 
We still have the memory of uh, uh, agricultural society in Greece, where people used to do things together, like they would do the olive trees uh, of my family this week, and then next week we'll do the olive trees of your family, and then the next week of the other neighbor. So they would uh, exchange services, and they like that. Nikki gives me and her friend Alexandra, who's also a member of the Time Bank, an art lesson one of the free services she provides. And in exchange, Alexandra helps out with the gardening, so the time is repaid. It's an amazing way of, uh, of receiving, finally, by giving to the others. As many Greeks struggle with wage cuts, tax increases, and with unemployment in the country now cripplingly high, there's been huge interest in the time banks and Varsa networks. There's places in Aladdin's cave of arts and materials. And it's no wonder, really, that this idea of swapping goods and services has proven so popular. It's building solidarity at a time when the economic situation is extremely uncertain. Whilst these barter networks won't solve Greece's financial problems, they do provide a massive amount of support for the participants. It's not a response to the economic crisis in the sense that it's going to overturn the government, but it's giving support and comfort to those who would like to overturn the terrible economic policies that are being imposed by the Troika. It's giving people support to feel that they can do something. With the tough economic times leaving many Greeks feeling worthless, there is real value in projects like the Time Bank. With the Greek government drowning in debt, these creative solutions are offering not only support, but encouragement to the people here, which at a time of deep recession are proving priceless commodities. Before the Euro, Greece and Italy always had the possibility of devaluing their currency when times were bad. This had the effect of lowering total debt and of conferring a competitive advantage as products, services and labour became cheaper, and this stimulated economic growth. It also made people poorer, as the money in their pockets was worth less. But crucially, it did not result in mass redundancies, especially not imposed by a foreign power. Under a hard currency like the euro, this option is no longer available to the indebted nations. So instead, they must cut. And because they remain uncompetitive, they cannot grow. The worst of both worlds. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Gwendolyn Hallsmith and Bernard Latere about their book, Creating Wealth. I was just in New York at Occupy Wall Street, and one of my friends in New York was a student at NYU and graduated with $70,000 of debt after a 50% scholarship. And she is working as a public servant and so not making a tremendously high salary, and most of her monthly income goes to cover her student loans. Yeah, how's so, she ever going to buy a house? Yeah, it's yeah. really outrageous. It's a new form of feudalism, the way they're making students go so deeply into debt. It's, I mean, even indentured servitude was better back in time. At least by then, you'd, you'd have release of your servitude after three to seven years. But Bernard's designed a great currency for Brazil that would help with that problem. The idea there is called the saber, which is in Portuguese, a word of knowledge or to learn. And the idea is currency is provided to seven-year-olds when they get into school in poor neighborhoods 
at the condition that they are choosing a mentor of an older age. And they create a chain of mentorship all the way to the 17 or 18-year-old. And then that currency for the 17 or 18-year-old can be used to pay university. The origin of this whole project came from the introduction of a 1% tax on all mobile phone bills when the mobile phones were privatized in Brazil. And this 1% went to a fund an education fund, a higher education fund. And that education fund is now worth over a billion dollars. And originally what I was asked was, what can we do with this? I mean, of course, we can compare it with a GI Bill model where you give scholarships to worthy people who could go to university but don't have the means to do so. Uh, that was the straight, simple scholarships. Well, being able to calculate that the Brazilian model provides a 100 times more retained learning in society than a straightforward scholarship. Because every time that a kid teaches another kid, the kid that teaches remembers 90% for the rest of his life. It's the most powerful way of learning something is actually to teach it. And so we're creating a chain of such things. I'm just back two weeks ago from Lithuania. And the issue in Lithuania was very interesting and relates to this topic. Lithuania doesn't have nice beaches, doesn't have warm climates, doesn't have ruins from Rome or Greece. So what they have decided is to become a learning society. First of all, learn themselves and become a country where people come to visit to learn. So they're creating a national learning program. And they have a currency that they will call the DORA. And the DORA will be uh, managed by a foundation, the National Learning Foundation. And the idea is to make a contract. If an individual or a group of people went to do something, in other words, have a dream. For example, I had in, uh, in my audience in Vilnius a 17-year-old who wanted to go learn Zen meditation in Burma and the mountains. I had another one who wanted to learn sailing. And the third one wanted to spend a weekend with his hero who happens to be in the Nobel Prize of Physics. Well, that foundation makes contracts with these people, with these kids, that saying, all right, for if you want to get that dream realized, you bring us a contract, 5,000 of doras or 7,000 doras or 2,000 doras, depending on the scale or the nature of support that the dream requires. And then they go and teach people to earn the doras. Now, what's interesting, if you offer these people or these kids normal money, they prefer the doras. The doras gets them to their dream. The national money doesn't. So it has become more important, a superior currency. You mentioned Occupy Wall Street. It's interesting because, of course, some of the messages that we've been getting from the group haven't had such a clear program of action attached to them, which is understandable, actually, because I think a lot of the people that are involved don't necessarily understand the monetary system. But if they did, I think calling for monetary democracy would be right at the top of their list of demands, because that's actually what is needed to address the concerns that they're raising. I mean, the book could actually be a manifesto for the Occupy Wall Street movement because it calls for the kinds of solutions that would end the dominance of the banking system and Wall Street in our financial lives. Why do you think the Occupy Wall Street protesters are targeting business and government instead of the money system? 
Well, the money system involves business and government, too. It's not as if uh, it doesn't. And, of course, there are some developments, especially in the United States lately, that have given corporations a good deal more power, which is objectionable as well. The whole Supreme Court decision that gave them the rights of people and added more input that the corporations can have in our national elections is actually a, a national outrage. So there are some reasons to be upset with some of the things that are occurring. But in fact, if you're worried about the increasing disparity between the rich and the poor, and if you're concerned about the grand theft government that's basically occurred since the crash of 2008, where our tax dollars have gone to bail out banks all over the world, what you're really calling for is monetary reform and a democratization of our monetary system so that the power to issue currency and the power to determine the values that we have in our economy, which is essentially what the currency does, is returned to the people. Right now, it's in the hands of the bank, and it has been since the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. So you mentioned earlier in the in the conversation about business-to-business networks and complementary mm-hmm. currencies that can help encourage business interaction. Could you explain a little bit about that? The prototype of that is the wheel in Switzerland which was started in 1934. The core idea was uh, you had uh, small, medium-sized businesses at the time. By the way, 90% of all private jobs are generated in small and medium-sized businesses. So we are dealing, we're dealing with this. When you talk about small, medium-sized businesses, you're talking about job creation or job maintenance. It's the same thing. What they did in Zurich, started in Zurich in 1934, there were 17 business people who basically said, well, look, we have a problem. My my bank is cutting off my credit and I cannot buy from you what I wanted to do. I wanted to buy. So in other words, if you have to wait for the banks to refinance all of us, we're all going to be very dead before that happens. So they created the mutual credit system, i.e. if I am selling you something, say for a thousand Swiss francs worth, I'm getting a thousand lira, and you have a debit of thousand lira. Now, if you're doing something back to me for for the equivalent price, that would be barter. However, if with my credit, I can go and buy something in one in another business, and you can sell something to another business. Still, we have created a currency between the four of us, which is created between ourselves. One lira equals one Swiss franc in value, and uh, so the accounting system doesn't have to change, and it has been operational for 75 years. Now, what's interesting is my colleague, James Stodder from Rensselaer University, has done a study about what is it that is the secret for the Swiss stability. It's interesting that Switzerland, economically or employment-wise, is a lot more stable than any of its neighbors. Okay? It's certainly a lot more stable than Italy or France or even Austria and Germany. So what is different? Well, it is not the mountains, and it's not the cows, and it's not the chocolate, and it's not the water. It is that little money system that everyone talks about, the weird. The weird acts spontaneously, counter-cyclically with the mainstream economy. When there is a boom period, and I'm fully at saturation, at capacity in my, my business. When someone comes along with weird, I say, come back next month. Because I always prefer Swiss francs to weird when offered the choice. Because with the Swiss francs, I can travel to Hawaii. I can buy stuff from China. While with weird, I have to buy something from one of the 75,000 members. Currently, there's a quarter of all Swiss businesses that are participants in the system. Now, when you're in a recession and nobody has credit, and you're coming along and offering me a thousand weird, I'll grab them. What happens is that the volume of weird and the number of participants increases for every recession and reduces during every boom period. So it stabilizes the economy. So what we're talking about is not theory. It has been proven macroeconomically in peer-reviewed journals. 
How are nations in South America beginning to implement similar systems? Well, there is actually an improvement that was developed by my friend at Strove, which is a Dutch NGO. We've been working in Brazil and uh, on Uruguay. I've been working with them for over 10 years now. And here is what they came up with. It's an improvement on the rear. The rear, as I just said, needs to be spent within the membership. You cannot go from rear to Swiss ranks. And you cannot buy rear with Swiss ranks either. They're two parallel systems. In the case of the C3, which is an abbreviation for the commercial credit circuit, the currency, the C3 units, are convertible into national money. I can explain it in some detail, but it may not be too, too detailed for, for your audience. But the consequence of that has been that Uruguay now accepts two currencies, bank debt money and C3 currency, for payment of all taxes. As a consequence, you can pay your telephone bill, you can pay the water system, you can pay everybody, actually, except the two currencies. In addition to dealing with business, you also addressed in the book a way that complementary currencies can enhance arts in a community. Could you explain just briefly about that? Well, there's a number of different ways it can happen. One is through the mechanism I described before, where the government could issue what we're calling civics, basically a complementary currency unit designed to encourage a particular kind of behavior. So the local government could decide, for example, that everybody should pay 10 units of these art civics every year. And the way you would earn those civics would be by going to performances or taking classes or buying art or participating in artistic events. So that would be one way to do it, basically an art contribution on the part of the whole. And by requiring that citizens pay some type of contribution in these art units, you're essentially creating a value for those units. So again, like I was talking about before with the exotic species harvesting, there'll be a lot of people that maybe spend more than they need in terms of time on artwork, but there'll be others that spend less. So the people that don't earn these artistic units would need to buy them or somehow barter for them from the people that have a surplus. So that would be one way to do some type of arts currency. Another cute example in the book based on, I think, a mythological occasion with Pablo Picasso, where he said to one of his dinner companions that if he scribbled something on a napkin and turned it in, it would pay for the meal. Where artists have developed these things called fluxus bucks, where they use note-sized pieces of paper to create artwork and use them as a currency, which is a lot of fun. And of course, even Standard units of exchange like time banking can also be used for the arts. In Bali, there's a complementary currency system that's been in existence for thousands of years. And a lot of the work of the community around ceremonies and celebrations and all the intricate, beautiful decorations they make for their traditional and religious holidays are all done using this type of time-based exchange system known as the Narayan Banjar. Now, People are expected to participate in that system as much as they are expected to participate in the cash economy. There is a story of a man in Bali who was like the Balinese equivalent of Bill Gates, got really rich in the financial side of the economy and neglected severely his responsibilities under the time-based Banjar system. And rumor has it that when he died, nobody came to his funeral. Now, can you imagine in our country an occasion where nobody would go to Bill Gates' funeral because he hadn't participated in this time bank. 
(laughs) But in any case, there's lots of ways to do it. The things that we need in abundance, the arts and healthcare, education, participation in government. Can you imagine if all of the folks down at Occupy Wall Street were actually earning credits for the time that they spent there that they could use for other things? It wouldn't feel like such a burden to be taking their civic responsibility as seriously as they are because maybe they could be earning units for the time that they're spending participating in government, albeit in one of its more extreme forms. Those are the things that our national bank debt money system doesn't value very well. It's very good at valuing things that are scarce. The pitching arm of the lead Red Sox pitcher, if you're from my part of the world, the gold in necklaces and jewelry, the rare jewels um, that are found in the earth, fossil fuels. I mean, we're never going to exchange fossil fuels with time dollars. So in fact, there is a function to having a money that values things that are scarce. That's an important social function. It mediates things that are scarce and values them appropriately, but it fails completely on the things that we need in abundance. And that's why we need to have another type of exchange system that deals with those issues more effectively, because they are the most important things in our lives. They're how we raise our children. They're how we care for our parents. They write our poetry. They produce our plays. They give us the health care we need when we get sick. They potty train our toddlers. All of these things that we spend our time on that the system doesn't value adequately are all of the things that make us human beings. And so that's a big problem when the financial system doesn't account for it well. Without money, what would we do? We got an old idea. We see what's going on. We say, money is the root of all evil. There ain't nothing evil about money. Because we need that money to pay the President scratching his head, the economy is down, Wall Street about to lose them, I mean, up and down, gas prices up and down, nobody knows what to do. <laughs> you know what we need, though. These last few years, I've had to get a lot more careful about how I spend my paycheck. Everyone has. But one thing I can't control is that every month, a big chunk of my paycheck goes off to our government. It's not the most fun part of my budget, but I believe in paying taxes. Not just because it's the law, but because it's how I invest in the better future that I can't afford to build on my own. You know, that future that we all want, and nearly every candidate promises us. Great schools, a healthy environment, clean energy, good jobs. But a funny thing happens to our money on its way to that better future. It seems to disappear. Right now, I can't even get a job cleaning toilets for minimum wage. I've tried at a local motel. There's nothing. I've made dumbed down versions of my resume. I'm just begging for any sort of work, walking around, applying to Starbucks, McDonald's, anything like I did when I was 17. And it makes me think, wow, well, why did I even go to college if this is what it's ending up with? Armed with a master's degree in geography and $135,000 in student debt, Gray collects $200 in monthly food stamps and sells textbooks on eBay to make extra cash. The struggling graduate lost both her parents by the age of 12. I'm approximately two months behind on my rent. I have no idea how to catch up. I, I lie awake at night just completely freaking out about this. I'm frightened of being evicted. But no matter how much she loses, she's obligated to keep paying back her private loan to Sally May, America's largest private lender. I took out $40,000 in loans and I'm already owing $65,000 and I just graduated a couple of months ago. 
$25,000 in interest came out of nowhere. Unlike federal loans, private loans can adjust interest rates as high as lenders want and don't offer consumer protection. Income-based repayment is not an option with any private loans. Um, neither is deferment for uh, the unemployed. For example, right now I'm desperately looking for work and Sally Mae wants payments. They want me to pay about $700 a month. Gray is one of millions of Americans saddled and haunted by student debt, but very few have any other option. Tuition costs have risen 600 percent since 1980, and most of the top Ivy League colleges cost $50,000 per year. Steph Gray is pioneering Occupy Student Debt, a movement calling for U.S. Congress to reinstate consumer protections that would keep private lenders from pushing millions of Americans into default. It's going to be defaults after defaults after default. And once you default, that's a black mark on your credit report for life because student loans cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. There was legislation to take this right away in 2005 that Sally May lobbied for, spending millions upon millions on lobbyists. Student debt in the U.S. is nearing $1 trillion, already reportedly surpassing the nation's credit card debt. And today, a generation of Americans find themselves enslaved to banks and armed with a diploma that no longer guarantees a job. Marina Portnaya, RT, New York. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking with Gwendolyn Hallsmith and Bernard Lotaire about their recent book, Creating Wealth. We've talked quite a bit about various ways that complementary currencies can help to enhance our lives and also help us renew our economies in this time of, of monetary rapid monetary change and collapse even. So how can we actually start implementing these? Why are cities so important in reforming our monetary systems, and why start there? Well, I think that cities are one of the few levels of government that are actually capable of accomplishing anything these days. I mean, the other levels of government tend to be paralyzed with the fiscal crisis that they find themselves in, especially in the United States. The government at the federal level is locked in this partisan debate over this debt ceiling, which is actually a product of the bank debt money that we use, and they're cutting back state government budgets severely. And so the states are scrambling to figure out how they're going to close the gaps in their budget to continue to offer their current services. It's awfully hard to innovate in those circumstances. But the local level in the United States has its own taxing authority, has the ability to do different things with its staff than it might do normally, and is a more versatile and more innovative level of government. I think we've certainly seen some examples of that in the last few years with respect to renewable energy and efficiency. The PACE program that spread like wildfire from municipality to municipality across the United States has a lot of potential to radically change the way we use energy. And so there's no reason why local innovations and new ways of exchanging with each other couldn't take on the same type of life. Municipalities learn from each other very quickly. And so it's a good level of government to work at. Plus, it's the government that's actually the closest to most people. It's, on an aggregate level, the largest form of government in the world. It's just relatively fragmented into smaller units. And so people don't recognize the power of municipal government. But when I was working in Central and Eastern Europe in Ukraine, people 
there knew the name of their mayor, but they didn't know the name of their president, where it tends to be the opposite here. People know the name of Obama, but they don't always know who the mayor is of their city. But the mayor of their city probably has a lot more to do with their everyday lives than President Obama does. The mayor is responsible in most cities for trash cleanup, for education, for the road maintenance. A lot of places the cities run some of the health services. We run community development programs. In my city where I work, we give loans to local businesses. And when local businesses run into trouble, they come to our offices to try and help them get back on their feet. So municipalities actually do have a lot to do with the local economy, whether we recognize it or not. Bernard, perhaps you could speak to some of the community currency projects that you've seen around the world that you find to be really showing a lot of success and paying dividends right now. Okay, I'm going to give you one example, which actually was the project leader of FAC in Belgium, and that got operational in 2010. This is something that was done in a city, uh, the city of Ghent, uh, in Flanders, which is the second largest city in that part of the country. And they gave me the poorest neighborhood of all of Flanders. That's a population of about 8,000 people, officially resident. The majority is uh, recent immigrants. 20 languages. The the largest community is Turkish. So you recognize the ghetto process that you have in 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 America. It's the same kind of setup with all the consequences of that. And the assignment was, can you make that neighborhood a pleasant place to live uh, where people say hello and where they're doing interesting things for each other? So we made an, an inquiry among the Turkish community, which is the largest one, And uh, we found out that what they really dream of is little bits of gardens, you know, a few four square meters, 10 square meters of of land where they can grow some vegetables and some fruit or some flowers. That's their dream. So we did the following. We prepared such gardens. There was, among other things, a large uh, factory in the neighborhood that uh, had gone bankrupt and had been destroyed. So we had a surface and we brought in the the soil and all the stuff that was needed to make a little garden. But those gardens cannot be bought. They can only be rented. And they can only be rented in one particular currency called Torotus. Torotus in Flemish means little towers because they're all living in large tower buildings. Okay? So hence the need for the, for the garden, by the way, because there's not a square meter of, ground, of green around them. So the immediate question was, all right, how can we earn these Torotus? Well, here's a long list of activities that you can choose from. Well, the first thing was basically clean up a bit the environment, plant some additional uh, green stuff along the, the street. If you put a little box of flowers on the street side, you'll get 10 photographs, and so on and so on. Uh, and also after a match, a football match or whatever, a basketball match, cleaning up the place with the photographs. The bottom line has been two things. The city of Ghent had more volunteers than they ever knew what to do with. It's suddenly a huge increase. And the second thing, there was an economic analysis made for a given budget in national money. The result using this approach was between three and 20 times more. So we had a multiplier effect. Just by the way, like we had in the Saharan Brazil. These complementary currencies are means to, uh, by linking unused resources with unmet needs, in the case of the tortoises, 
I used resources as people who are unemployed anyway, and the unmet need was the little garden. By creating a currency to make such a link, you, you don't need to spend a lot of natural money to make things happen. Let's say I, I'm listening to this interview right now, and I'm thinking I, I want to do something with my community in starting a complementary currency system. What is it that we need to tell our elected officials or mayors or uh, the people around us about getting something like this off the ground? You can start one without necessarily getting local government involved right at the outset, although I think it's very helpful to do it because the local government has a very good network in the community. But time banks can be started on their own. So can commercial barter systems. So can a lot of these systems. I think the thing that I would tell my elected officials and the people in city government, which I have been doing now for several years, is that to really help the local economy and to help people in the city raise their standard of living without having budgetary impacts on the city, these monetary interventions and currency innovations are a good way to go. Any government official likes hearing about an improvement or a program that doesn't necessarily cost additional money. All these programs take is a level of organization and it doesn't hurt to have some staff support, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a huge investment at first. You can start them without a lot of effort and without a huge staff. And do you see this being a potential project for even uh, chambers of commerce? Absolutely. In Vermont, the Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility, which actually has more members than our Chamber of Commerce, has sponsored the commercial barter system in something they call the Vermont Marketplace. So all of the members of the Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility group now have access to a commercial barter system they can use for trading amongst themselves. Excellent. Just wanted to see if there is any closing thoughts that either of you wanted to leave with us. Well, I think we have actually two books. One of them is the one you mentioned already, Creating Wealth. And there is a second one that's coming out next week, which is by myself and uh, Stephen Belden called New Money for a New World, which actually uh, provides more of the historical background. The book with Gwen is uh, a how-to book, concretely, specifically at the local and the city level. The other one is uh, broader, more philosophical, and uh, more historical. Complementary currencies can occur from a very small scale to an international scale. There's nothing about complementary currencies that is necessarily local. However, local currencies are the easiest thing for a lot of people to start doing if they want to take action to address some of the inequities that we have in our system and to address some of the concerns that people have now leading to things like Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring and all of the uprisings that have been occurring because of the increasing disparity between the rich and the poor. That disparity is a function of our monetary system, and we can take matters in our own hands and introduce new forms of exchange that start to equal the balance again. And it will also actually provide more stability to the system as a whole. In other words, exactly. it makes it possible by having several channels to make exchanges possible, the society becomes more robust if any one of them including, by the way, the mainstream one, the official dollar one in this country, gets in trouble, uh, would be a lot less damaging than it is now.
And that's the end of our conversation with Gwendolyn Hallsmith and Bernard Leter on uh, definitions of wealth, uh, governance issues in the euro, um, the role of a tax system in creating our currency, um, currency ecologies uh, as opposed to a currency monoculture, the whole idea of systems thinking when thinking about the study of currency collapse, and then all the currency alternatives that they offer in their book, like time banking systems, the Swiss Veer, some of the other currency projects that Bernard and, and Gwendolyn are involved with. And I got to say, that was one of our more technical interviews because currencies are, are a pretty technical project. And you might have a lot of questions still that we weren't able to get to in just the, the limited hour that we had with Gwen and Bernard. And if you do have more questions, there's a lot of information that they both put out on the internet. Bernard has a lot of information on his website, but also the book Creating Wealth is really an interesting and fascinating look at these complementary currency systems and explains it, uh, you know, even better than we were able to in the podcast interview. So I definitely recommend looking into it for more information. But Seth, what do you think about a currency ecology instead of a, a currency monoculture? Do you think that could help us in what? navigating a time of economic uncertainty? Currency is just something that we use to exchange value with each other. I really like the example they were talking about how they uh, paid up the wealth. The small children paid up to the larger children and paid up to the larger children until they got to the top where they got to the college level and then they actually got the money. I think that was a very interesting way of distributing wealth around from the bottom up, which is very different from what we think of as the way wealth moves. We usually think of wealth moving from the top, trickling down to the bottom. When you start at the bottom and move the wealth to the top, it makes the economic system more for the people at the bottom, which is, you know, something that's it's a very refreshing model. Yeah, it's completely different from the way that we look at wealth distribution for the last few decades. And starting with the Reagan administration and trickle-down economics, we got this idea that if we concentrate wealth more and more at the top, that we would all benefit because those people were the job creation engines. And what Gwendolyn and Bernard are, are talking about is different ways of building that wealth in the community. And a lot of their systems are about creating wealth at the bottom level that then is a great foundation, a powerful substrate, a, a rich soil that all of these currencies can can use to then grow wealth all the way up up the pyramid. And, and no matter where the Occupy movement is going over the next few months, it's been unbelievably successful at starting to get into the public dialogue this idea of wealth concentration, the fact that it's unjust, and the fact that we need to find an alternative to concentrating wealth. And if there's one way that we can start actually taking action, and they said this, Gwen and Bernard said this in the interview, that there's no better manifesto for the Occupy movement than uh, Creating Wealth, their book, because it actually gives you a mechanism. It actually gives you ways that you can start changing this 99%, 1% narrative and using these comp uh, complementary currency systems to begin solving that issue. Government has a role in taxing the people. There is a role for all the community good that government does and all the programs that happen along the way. And I think one of the reasons why the United States is in the situation that it's in, why all of our Western developed countries are in the state that they are in, is because people haven't been participating in the governmental process for so long. Like all of our ancestors fought really hard to get us to the point where we're at now. And the problem is that life got so good, it got so easy that we all thought we could just sit back and chill out 
and hang out and not have to be involved in the governance issues. And I know it's really popular to be post-political in, in some circles and to say, you know, politics is just broken. There, there's no point in being engaged with it. And I got to say, I was at that point a while ago where I just thought like the whole system was so corrupt, had so much momentum and was so unchangeable that there was just no hope. But seeing things like Bill McKibben and the 350.org movement, the way that they used people to put their bodies on the line through being arrested and, and getting out there and actually saying, you know, we're going to have civil disobedience because we disagree with this decision. And it actually made a change. It actually worked. And that's encouraging. You look at the Occupy movement. It's actually working. That's encouraging. You know, what's stopping people who have an understanding of collapse, of complexity, from getting out there and running for office. You know, they might not win, but they might change the dialogue. They might be able to get these concepts into the political discussion a little bit. And we recorded an interview with Joseph Tainter, who's written a lot about com uh, collapse and complex societies. And we asked him, you know, what do you think that people can do to actually start dealing with these ideas? And he said, you got to get out there. And you have to talk to your neighbors about it. You have to talk to your friends about it. You have to get this idea into the, into the mainstream. Because if you don't, there's some really terrible consequences that could occur if we don't start understanding the path that we're headed on. And it's very interesting. Once you get that dialogue started, it's just a roller coaster effect. It's that going downhill, the hardest part is actually getting that idea out in the first place. But once you get it moving, it just takes on its own momentum, as we see with so many different things. Once you have it in the public eye and everyone starts talking about it and you get the political candidates talking about these ideas instead of drill, baby, drill, they start talking about these ideas of complexity and these ideas of, of different kinds of currencies. That makes it so much easier to move in a direction that is more productive and will move our society in a direction that it needs to be moving in. Imagine if the Occupy movement suddenly started started to evolve and become really coherent around a single issue and had a single demand and they said, we're going to change campaign finance reform in the United States. We're going to make it so that everyone can only run for office with public money and the United States government is going to fund every campaign and cap it at like $10,000 or like $100,000 or something. And suddenly that just cuts all the corporate money influence out of the system in a really dramatic way. Yeah, it, it'd take a while to implement and it would take some time. But imagine if you had someone who had the power and the clout uh, of the presidency who understood these issues and was like, hey, we're headed for a really grim path, guys. This is a really steep cliff that we're headed for. And we need to start adapting. We need to start changing our lives. Now, am I optimistic to think that something like that will happen? I really Probably. don't think so. I, yeah. I really don't think so. But you got to hold out hope that something like that's possible. I don't know, Seth. Do you think that talking about these topics like alternative currencies and, and co collapse in society kind of has a taboo with it? What's it like when you bring it up with other people? Oh, for sure. When you, you see what politicians have to deal with. You, if, you, if you bring up one of these ideas in a public forum or debate or something, they get shouted down. They get, they get told that these ideas are, are nothing and they call you a kook and a, and, a, and a crazy guy, which is ridiculous because so many of these ideas have so much backing as we've seen for all of the guests that we talk to. Personally, I find these ideas really hard to talk about because you start bringing up ideas like we talk about today with these alternate currencies or we talk about with Joseph Tainter in, in some future interviews. 
these ideas are not easily described to people who have no idea what, what you're talking about. So you say our society is moving towards a collapse. It's moving towards a place where there's going to be an 80% die-off of the population. It makes people turn off. It makes people think, you're a super downer, doomer, big guy. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm, I'm going to go watch the baseball game. It's much easier... <laughs> yeah. It's much easier to concentrate on something that's small and right in front of you and not long term. And that's one of the problems that our species faces is being able to look at the situation from a global perspective, any situation from a global perspective, and see the outcomes that are very much in the, in the, in the road and maybe not within a year or two, but you know, coming, coming up. These are things that are happening. And if you don't take proper precautions and you take, don't take proper action, it's going to be a terrible outcome for a lot of people in this world. So do you think that people are starting to look at the situation that's occurring now? Like, you know, you saw the whole debt ceiling debate back in August, you know, and there was that big scare, like people were saying the U.S. might default and all this stuff. And it may not be true that the U.S. would have defaulted or not. But do you think that people are seeing that? They're seeing what's happening in Europe. They're seeing what's happening in Greece. They're seeing the people occupying their squares and starting to think like, maybe this is something pretty big. You know, it's starting to disrupt my daily life pattern. Maybe I should do some research into this. Do you think that there's maybe kind of like this base understanding that uh, we're not just in a recession, that maybe this is something a bit bigger? I feel like if you can't see the trends that are happening, the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, all the protests that are happening around the world, the defaults that are going on in Europe or the near defaults, the devaluation of the currencies that are going on, the extreme amounts of bailouts that our government's putting into our banking system. If you don't see all these things as some kind of larger trend, then I don't know where you've been living. I mean, you could be watching the football game and not watch, not seeing all these things happen. But if you're living in the United States where you have access to extreme amounts of communicative media, there's really no way that you can miss these trends that are happening. I mean, listen to one of our podcasts and you'll be up to date on all this stuff pretty much right justin and not just one of our podcasts so many out there you know like kmo and the sea realm he's been talking about uh these ideas for years and years uh, on his podcast and That's it's got to start feeling really strange to start seeing all this stuff play out in a way and it's easy to look at the arab spring and you know paint the story of like yeah these people are fighting for democracy but it, it's connected to the energy question. It's connected to all of these bigger trends that are going on in society. And I really think the job of the journalist of the future, and by the future, I mean like now in the next year or two, is drawing all these trends together, like saying, why are suddenly all these people unemployed? Why are all these people occupying squares? It's because our last episode with Richard Heinberg, we talked about why it's happening. Growth is ending. The, the limits to growth have been reached. And economies might grow on paper in the future, but they're not growing in real terms. And now that growth has ended, it essentially invalidates almost all of the assumptions of neoclassical economics. And we're going to live through a period, uh, and, it, and it's really exciting. It can be scary. Um, it, it's a roller coaster ride for sure. But we're going to have to change everything we know about the way society operates in terms of economics. And here we go. Let's buckle up. And, and part of that process is the community currencies that we talked about today. There's going to be communities that have community currencies. And if there is a large scale currency collapse, they're going to be more prepared than the communities who didn't. And it's because people got out there and were engaged with their local governments and educated their local politicians on these issues and made a point at it. Those individual people are the ones who down the road can look back and say, you know, because I did that, 
my community was much better prepared for what came down the road. So, you know, it's a lot of responsibility to listen to this podcast and understand these ideas and understand the action that has to occur. Uh, but it's also, it's more interesting. It's more exciting. And even though it is responsibility, is it better to know what's coming down the road and begin actively preparing for it, have an honest, frank discussion about it? Or is it better just to live in in happy mainstream media world where it's just Democrats and Republicans fighting each other and, you know, the deficit reduction plan till 2017 is going to be the main priority? And if do you want McDonald's or do you want Burger King tonight? I was actually really fascinated by uh, Aston Kutcher's uh, wedding or were you yeah that was that was fascinating yeah how about we go in a cocaine binge and get in a tabloid do you think that's that would help yeah you know the hosts of the extra environmentalist podcast going on a cocaine (laughs) binge ending up in a nightclub and probably and stripping i'm gonna carry a gun and shoot myself in the leg accidentally well hopefully you don't have a uh a golf club to break somebody's window either (laughs) because that would be just bad Hey guys, this is John in Williamsburg. I sent you an email a couple of months ago with a problem I was having, which was uh, you had disturbed this wonderful relationship I had with podcasts, which was with the exception of KMOs, I was able to listen to podcasts and happily drift off to sleep at night. And then along came you guys, and um, the podcasts were so good, it was keeping me awake, I couldn't go to sleep um, while listening to them. So that was the email. But things have now gotten worse. You know, there have been a, a couple out of the last uh, two or three, matter of fact, they're probably more than that, uh, where they're so good, I've had to listen to them twice. So not only are you keeping me awake for your one hour, i got to listen to it again, now you're keeping me awake for two hours. I don't know if I should say keep up the good work or, or what, but in any case, I sure am glad you guys are doing this, I guess. So I really do love your podcast. It is just a hoot. It's informative, and I just love the way you guys go off and get so many interesting, varied speakers. By the way, I heard that you were in your mid-20s. I'm 59, and I find it incredibly refreshing to hear uh, uh, your perspectives. Um, Incredibly refreshing, and by the way, incredibly reassuring. So uh, thank you both again. Bye. So we apologize, John, for ruining your satisfaction with podcasts. We're really sorry about that, but I, I hate to tell you, that we have some amazing shows planned coming up. We're talking to some really incredible people, and it's only going to get worse. So don't You're expect that trend to change. You're not going to be sleeping very much. You're just not going to be going to sleep at all. It's going to be tough for you, John. I hear coffee so, helps and naps. Coffee doesn't help to go to sleep. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it helps stay awake, though, if you're tired. That's true. John also left a, us a very generous donation, which we are extremely, extremely grateful for. If you also want to leave us a donation, you can do that as well via our website. And if all the downloads that we've had over the last year just left us 50 cents, we could do this full time and we would blow people's minds. I mean, we're working on this one episode right now where we've spoken with a few different people about a particular topic. I don't want to uh, ruin the surprise. But um, we're going to have a pretty good show coming up here in the next few months around a certain topic. And, uh, you know, we'd be able to do shows like that all the time where you'd have like three or four different people who could like weigh in on a single topic. And, uh, you know, it, it would be pretty amazing. It'd start becoming more and more like the radio lab of this kind of thought collapse and and honest discussions about our ecological and economic reality. It'd be pretty incredible. Let's read some of this mail here. 
Jeffrey, who liked my comment about the Game of Thrones, comparing it to the current mindset that still seems to prevail from the Middle Ages. He likes the food that they talk about, and he was he would be amazed to have that quality of food again and living in an unpolluted environment. May the gods have mercy on us all. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Jeffrey. And um, uh, we had a message from Graham, and he's he wanted to know a little bit about the music that we played on our show. Um, and it's it's awesome that he wrote in to remind us, to remind you, our listeners, that every single episode that we post, we have it on our website at extraenvironmentalist.com. And in our show notes, we list out all the songs that we used in the episode that we've pulled from different music blogs on the internet. So if you if you enjoy the music, go on go on to our website, find it, download it, support those artists. They're really doing incredible stuff. Uh, if you don't like the music, let us know too. It's, it's always good to hear feedback. Hey guys, quasi periodic. I'm just out here trying to work on my tractor, uh, and y'all are keeping me company, so I gotta thank you for that. You guys are just the next big thing, as far as I'm concerned. I think you're awesome with the remix mashup culture and quality production. It's not something I usually care a lot about, but I really appreciate the way y'all uh, keep it tight. It's just like real sharp on point. I'm describing a podcast all the time. They're just like rambling. A little here and there, preferably at the end of the show, is okay. But if you give me a rambling intro every time, I'm not going to keep my interest. But yeah, y'all are really um, giving me hope. Might be stating it a little too strongly, but I'm really glad to see uh, development. Holy shit, I just found a dead baby mouse. What the hell? Give up the good work. Have a good day. Thanks, Quality Periodic, for that awesome, awesome voicemail. We really appreciate that you're listening, and you're much too kind, far too kind, and far too complimentary, but uh, we really appreciate the words. Uh, be careful when you're working on that tractor. That's our advice. That's, Look that's out for true. the baby mice. They could just that, die if, anywhere. <laughs> if you really want to get involved with the Extra Environmentalist, and you want to find out more and check out a lot of our past episodes you can find us on www.extraenvironmentalist.com you can find us on facebook type in extra environmentalist and we pop right up you can follow us on twitter at x environmental and you can leave us a voicemail message at any time of the night so if you're up at three o'clock in the morning in you know russia and it's time to leave a voicemail message you can because it goes straight to our online inbox and that number again is 1-919-701-9872. And all this information is listed on our new How You Can Help the Extra Environmentalist page on the extraenvironmentalist.com website. If you listened to an episode and you really felt impressed by it and you just want to say thanks, just check out that page and do one of those things on there. All, all you got to do is just post the link on a Facebook wall or find a blog that's interesting that's on similar topics and post a link to us. It's amazing what just little things like that can do. But, you know, every little bit adds up and helps. And the point is, we've got some incredible listeners out there. So thanks for listening. Uh, we also got an email from Rachel at the University of Pittsburgh. And they're starting an environmental podcast up there and have really been enjoying the show. So uh, shout out to all of our listeners in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, thanks thanks for listening and, uh, and good luck with the new podcast. Uh, you know, if you're on a college campus and you feel inspired to start talking about these issues, doing radio is a great way to do it. There's a lot of campuses with college radio. And so, you know, start doing it. Start uh, organizing things with your professors. You know, maybe you could get someone from your economics department and bring them in and ask them, you know, why 
why can infinite growth continue forever really challenged him on that and if there's one thing that is encouraging to me and shows me hope it's that at harvard the group in in greg manku's introductory economics class greg has written this uh textbook that's used uh, across the world and and teaching basic neoclassical intro to economics a lot of the students got up and walked out of the class to protest that what they're learning is ridiculous wow. and people are starting to realize that what they've been learning in college economics is ridiculous and that's really a lot of the big themes that we cover on the show is how detached from reality it is and students have got to get out there and demand better they've got to go to their economic departments and sit in the, the classes they're required to take and say hey why why are we on this system of economic growth you know these assumptions are flawed educate yourself about those assumptions and start challenging your professors it, it, it's the job of all of us students to start doing that it's a hard way to get an a doing that stuff but you <laughs> might you might learn something it is hard to get an a and one last uh, email to cover i heard from eric in montreal he sent in some photos of his oyster mushrooms that he's growing and he just wanted to let us know that while he was inoculating all those grain bags with his oyster mushrooms that he's growing to give out to friends at Christmas, he was listening to the extra environmentalists while he was working. So thanks so much for listening, Eric. That was a big listener mail segment, but we're hearing from so many of you. So we really do love to hear from you. It's like fuel for the fire whenever we get a listener email or voicemail. It's just like, wow, I got to get in there and edit and get that episode out to everyone who's listening. So thank you so much. And, and just keep doing what you're doing as listeners, and we'll keep doing what we're doing as podcasters. Amen, brother. I think that pretty much wraps it up for episode 29 of The Extra Environmentalist. What do you think, Seth? I think that that's pretty good. Yeah. Let's get out there and rake some leaves. The bonfire. Get out there and dance around a bonfire of leaves. While making oyster mushrooms. The true correctives to American democracy came through movements that never achieved formal political power. The anti-slavery movement, the suffragists who fought for women's rights, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, none of them achieved political power because they understood, as Karl Popper wrote in the Open Society and its enemies, the question is not how do you get good people to rule. That's the wrong question. Popper writes that most people attracted to power are at best mediocre, which is Obama, or venal, which is Bush. The question is how do you make the powerful afraid of you? And that's what you're doing now. The last liberal president we had in the United States was Richard Nixon. It was Richard Nixon, not because he was a liberal, because he was still scared of those movements. Mine and Safety Act, OSHA. I, I had dinner down in, uh, in uh, Charleston, West Virginia, with a guy named Ken Heckler, maybe the last honest public servant in America, living in a two-room apartment. He was a Congress, Congress person, and uh, Heckler was a fighter for the miners. And while Nixon was in office, he, he was pushing through the black lung bill by which miners who have black lung, every miner who spends any time in the mines with black lung, uh, would get benefits, which the companies were denying them. And Nixon didn't want to sign it 
and Heckler held a press conference and he said, well, let me tell the president this. If he doesn't sign that bill tonight, every single mine in this country will shut down. And Heckler said, I had no idea whether they were going to shut down or not. <laughs> but little Richard Nixon got out his pen and he signed it as fast as he could. That's how power works. And you don't want to compromise with power ever. It's not our job to take power. That's not our job. It's our job to rebuild the radical movements that keep this country honest. time on the extra environmentalist even when they often profess that they're happy with how their lives have gone that's never the full story because there's just too much that you sacrifice to be a cog in the machine that doesn't create some other kinds of feelings but very often people suppress those they hold them down. They won't acknowledge that, in fact, being a cog in the machine meant being treated very, very poorly by managers, executives, supervisors, and so on. That they suffered humiliations to get there. That they often felt depressed about the emptiness of the nine to five and doing the same thing over and over again so that CEOs could get rich, that they are deeply worried and saddened by the idea that the children who they thought they were preparing a better future for are going to have a worse future than they did. I mean, many, many people who accept the role of being a cog in the machine often say to you, I do this so that my kids can have a better life. That's very often what they passionately believe, that they're making sacrifices because it will be better for their children. And what I think we're beginning to see is just the early signs of a kind of fraying of that loyalty to the system. They're not yet prepared to say it's time for radical social change, but they have doubts and bigger doubts perhaps than they've maybe had in their whole lifetime about where this society is going and what the future is. And they're brutalizing people now. They're cracking them over the head with billy clubs. They're pepper spraying babies. Yoda's financial advice is not for investment decisions. Yoda is not responsible for any investment decisions you make during this call or after the call. Do not use Yoda's advice as something that you do to protect your money. However, Yoda's financial advice is well-researched and is a lot of fun. Oh, hello and welcome to Yoda's financial advice. The force is strong, so we're going to take our first call. Hello, caller. You're calling in from Occidental California, hmm? What is question you have, hmm? Oh, that's right, Yoda. I'm calling about uh, financial advice. Um, the markets are all crashing. The, the USA is no longer AAA rated. Where do I put my money? Money placed is decision hard, hmm? Company making V for Vendetta mask is good investment. 
many rioters will use many masks. Hmm? Find company that produce and place money there. Alright, another call. This is Joe calling in from New York. New York, hmm? Uh, yeah, hello, Yoda. I'm trying to, uh, ship some, some olives that I got from my friend Jose out in, in California. And in, in, uh, in Oakland, yeah. So, uh, I, I can't get, get, get my stuff there because the ports are closed. There have been rioters in the streets. So what's your best suggestion for getting Jose my olives? Use the force, hmm? No, just kidding. Actually, use complex finance mechanism through using animal husbandry. Create sheep. Grow them up, hmm? Strap packages to sheep and run them in right direction. Hmm. Guided by force, the sheep will find their path. Uh, yeah, thanks, Yoda. Now, cut to one of sponsors. Yoda want to thank sponsors quite a bit. Here's a special message from one. <laughs> the United Delivery System is a special package delivery company. We want to thank all of our wonderful patrons with our new company-wide promotion campaign. UDS would like to make sure that you have your specially UDS-issued taser gun so that you can electrocute your mailman. With specially designed UDS technology, no longer will you have that sleazy mailman hanging around your door. Simply tase him with your UDS-issued taser gun and no longer will you have that problem. UDS wants to ensure that our package delivery strategy is sustainable for the future. Using this taser, you'll be able to ensure that more and more people use UDS. Thank you for your patronage. Now we're back. All right, we'll take more calls. Yoda would like to point out that using the force of ECB can help solve Euro crisis. Hmm? Without this, investors will continue to be spooked. Will not invest in banks cause potential bank run? Hmm, very deep. Let's take more calls. This is a call from the Federal Reserve directly. Yoda. What is the meaning of this show? Um, I was, I was just, because I am green, I was helping people with their financial problems, hmm? You know that we do not do this kind of thing. And you and I both know that the force runs strong in the elite. Um, uh, do you, do you have a question? <laughs> Your mother called and asked if you had sent flowers to her. She was very upset that you had missed her birthday. Uh, Yoda take care of that well. Flower shipped on Monday will be do or not do. There is no try. Hmm, very good. I have another call from the District of Columbia, Washington. Hmm? Yes, this is uh, Timmy from Washington. I was wondering if you had any advice on how uh, I could uh, help erase my $15 trillion debt. Uh, any advice would be great. I'll take my answer off the air. Oh, Timmy calling in from Washington. Thank you for listening. What I advocate is a system of cheetahs that could be strapped together. The cheetahs will eat all financiers. Suddenly, debt's forgiven. Debt jubilee occurs, hmm? More sponsors need support. We'll air their messages now. Need to get in shape? Need to work on that six-pack? Need to make those arms look like huge guns? Well, we've got the program for you. Welcome to End of the World Fitness. 
This is like nothing you ever seen before. This is a gym that solves all your problems with no motivation and puts you in the best shape you ever been in your life. That's right. You lack the motivation to get up every morning. We have the solution for you with our patented zombie system. Why pay for a personal trainer when you can pay for an actor dressed as a zombie who'll make you think that the end of the world is right around the corner? Your zombie will come to your house and moan until you are awake and then chase you all over the house until you get into that shape that you want. Need to go on a run? This zombie will run after you, moaning very loudly until you have run your desired amount of distance. These zombies are top-notch, straight out of zombie acting school. They're gonna motivate you to get into that gym and cycle away. Your spin class has never been so good. Just listen to Carol, who's been using our zombie actor motivation service for the past year. I was a little bit afraid at first, but when that zombie appeared at my door, I knew it was time to run. And run I did. Oh my goodness. I ran so fast that I, I tore a ligament and fell down. The zombie came up and was going to eat me, but then but then had my gun there, so I just shot him in the head. It was okay. As you can tell from our powerful testimonials, this is the most motivation you're ever going to receive from any kind of gym membership. So get out there and join. Hmm. Think sponsor Yoda does. Much force in their message. Alright, one last call. Oh, this one international, coming in from Dave in London. Oh yes, Ryota, I'm calling in from uh, London, England here. Uh, my debt seems to be out of control. It's ridiculous. The people are rioting in the streets. What am I supposed to do about it? Well, UK economy too attached to mainland euro currency. In case of collapse, UK also go down. European banking system be like diarrhea. Soon have runs. Hmm? Must disconnect economy. Yet population density very high. Many people live on British Isles. Yoda suggest permaculture. Hmm? That's all the time we have for today. Next up, after Yoda financial advice, it's Roarbox on CNBC. Take it away. Yoda's financial advice is not for investment decisions. Yoda is not responsible for any investment decisions you make during this call or after the call. Do not use Yoda's advice as something that you do to protect yourself. However, Yoda's financial advice is well researched and it's a lot of fun.